All right, well, we're going to do John 7 through 10 today. Right, see, see, see how that goes. Uh, that's a lot. There's a lot in here. Um, and obviously, it's going to be very broad strokes, but I believe that this section uh, more or less is, is hitting at a few of the same things uh, in, each of the, in each of the chapters. Um, so if you're visiting with us, we're right in the middle of an extended study of John, which is part of our extended study of our extended walk through all of the Bible. And we started, I think, January 2015 in Genesis. And here we are in John. Uh, and this is actually the last stop because we've done all of Paul's letters. We're just doing all of John's writing to finish it out. So John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Revelation. Um, so we're here, and John divides in two parts, uh, chapters 1 through 12, chapters 13, 13 through 21. Uh, and, the, and the first 12 chapters are really, uh, you can call them the book of signs. It shows seven signs that point to Jesus as the Messiah, the one, the Son of God. Um, and uh, they're very clear signs. John says that he's not writing uh, to give us everything that Jesus did because that would fill all the books in the world. He's writing to give us specifically signs that point to him as the Christ. And he says that uh, I write these things so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And one of our main focuses in John is the fact that eternal life is knowing God. That just being in relationship with God, that is eternal life itself. We don't enter into relationship with God to receive some sort of eternal life as a reward or after we die. Being in fellowship with God is what life was always meant to be. That's why man was created, to walk with God. Um, And so that is really at the heart of John's gospel. And Jesus is saying that's at the heart that's, that's at the heart of what he's doing, and people aren't understanding it. And so chapter 7 through 12 really give us this escalating division and conflict in the ministry of Jesus. Um, so I, I just want to pull out four, four big, uh, I guess, signposts in, in these three chapters. We are obviously going to have to go broad because there are several moments in here where you could just take two or three scriptures, and if you thought about them for long enough, it would just open up into an entire, <laughs> an entire theology. Um, that's how John works. He, he, these little nuggets you can get, and then you just start thinking about them, and they're very simple on the surface. The, you know, there's nothing fancy about the grammar or the or the words that are being used, but then you start to think about it and think about it, and then kind of the bottom drops out. And you just see that this is like an endless, an endless truth that I could meditate on. Um, so we can't get on, in that level. And, you know, I, I feel like I need to ask for forgiveness because there, there, are, such, there are such treasurable um, scriptures in here. But here's, here's the four main uh, kind of pillars of, of, these, of this section, 7 through 12. Uh, number one is the growing division. All right. The fact that the presence of Jesus and, the, and the, the things that he is saying are causing people to react and take sides. 
Um, number two would be the I am statements. And let me say, I'm going to call back and say a few things about that. The I am statements. I think I've mentioned those before as one of the key features of John's gospel. There are seven signs and there are seven big I am statements that Jesus makes. Um, a majority of those happen in, the, in 7 through 10. Um, the third thing would be the, the, the sign of the healing of the man born blind. That happens in chapter 9. It's the only sign that takes place in this section. Uh, we have signs in rapid succession, but then we have this longer dialogue where only one sign happens. And then the uh, Jesus' discourse on being the good shepherd sort of serves as a summary and really a, a, a climax for this whole section. Okay, so I'm going to look at those four, uh, those four angles in John 7 through 10. So the growing division, um, <clears throat> there, have, there has been some controversy around Jesus. And I think in one place earlier than this, it says that they, they were seeking to kill him. The Jews were seeking to kill him. But now, like at every turn, um, there is danger awaiting him. And the only reason that he doesn't die, that he's not stoned on the spot, is it's not yet his time. And so you see that sort of repeated through this section. Chapter 7 opens up like this. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand, and that was the fall, kind of their fall feast, um, sort of like Thanksgiving. It was a, it was a harvest feast, and then they would, they, they would also make booths for themselves. And, um, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The, word, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that it, its works are evil. Um, so you, you hear, let me just read a few verses that highlight this growing division and controversy. Verse 12, it says, There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man... Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Um, verse 26, chapter 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Um... Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him. Uh, verse 43, and this is kind of a squabble over where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Um, later on, there are, there are two moments at which they actually pick up stones on the spot. And one is after when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they go, and then the other one is, is when he says, I and the Father are one. And they go, and they're just enraged. Okay? At the same time, you see people starting to, to, to really believe him. So the, the bottom line is this. 
there is a division. Those who, would, those who have a heart to, to believe Jesus become closer and closer to him. And they start to see more and more. Those who, who fundamentally do not want to do what he is saying or do not want to believe him, they get angrier and angrier. Okay? There's, no, there's no neutral people at this point. You are either getting closer to him or you're becoming more and more angry as, as time goes on. And the division revolves around people's own judgments and perceptions of who he is. People have an idea about who he is, and actually a lot of it's rooted in their understanding of Scripture. And based on Scripture, they are getting angrier and angrier and angrier at Jesus. The reason they pick up stones to, to, to kill him is because of their zeal. Right? They are Pharisees. It's blasphemy to, make your, to call yourself God. That is an offense against the Almighty. You deserve death. Um, but there are these interesting, and all through here, Jesus is saying, if you wanted to see me, you could. If you wanted to obey me, you could. If you wanted to do what I'm saying, you could. If you want to know where I come from, your heart needs to be right first. You're blinded by your own preconceived notions of what the Christ is supposed to be, and who it is that I am, who's standing before you right now. So uh, chapter 7, verse 17 says this. And this is one of these things, this, this is one of these verses where you could just sit and think about how profound it is. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. If you really understood the will of God, everything I'm doing and saying would make perfect sense to you. There would be no thing in you that rises up and says, This is false. This is bad. This guy is nuts. He has a demon. Jesus says, If you really understood God... What I'm doing and saying would make sense to you. Um, they appeal to Scripture. And he says, you're reading it wrong. They says, we, Moses says this. And he says, you don't understand Moses. Well, Abraham did this. You don't understand Abraham. I'm coming to you as one who predates all of them. And who, who has a more profound understanding of the Father than any of them could ever hope to have. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. And we could, we could talk for a long time about this. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. If you really understood... Abraham, you'd be living the same kind of life that he lived. And what I'm doing in the life that I live would be much more familiar to you if you really understood what Abraham was all about. So this division, the presence of Jesus, what he is doing, causes people to wrestle with their own understanding 
of the law, their own understanding of the Messiah, and their own interpretation of the man Jesus. What do you mean? What what he's all about? All right. So he starts making all of these I am statements. All right. And what's significant about this? If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the name of God that he gives Moses in Exodus three is I am or Yahweh. He says. Exodus says who, Exodus, uh, Moses tells God, God is about to send him to Pharaoh. He says, who should I tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent me. Or the one who is. In other words, he is being itself. There's no, he's not the sun God. He's not the moon god. He's not any of those god, the bird god or the, or the river god. He's none of that. He's outside of the created order. He is who he is. And that is the name of God. He is the one who becomes. The one who always is. And so that's the name of God. That's the personal name of God. A little Bible lesson here. In your Old Testament, usually whenever you see LORD in all caps... It's this personal name of God. I'm sure most of you knew that. But you you always have to remember that. Because Lord means master. Lord, all caps, means I am. Yahweh. He who is. Um, The Jews wouldn't even pronounce that name because it was so sacred. And so Jesus comes and he says... uh, and this is really, I think, what's, growing, what's, what's driving this growing division is Jesus is becoming more and more explicit about who he really is. Jesus' claims about himself, they're becoming more frequent and more clear. So we have a high concentration of these I am statements of this language here in, in John 7 through 10. Um, 8, 12 and 9, 5, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, 7, and 10, 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep, or the gate. I'm how you get into the fold. Um, and in chapter 10, 11, and 14, he calls himself the good shepherd. But also more than that, and I think even more profound, is he makes statements like in eight twenty four, where he says... I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I. Um, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's ego eimi. That's the that is the Greek form of I am. When Jesus is walking to them on the lake, He says, "Fear not, I am. It is I." Um, verse 28 of, of chapter 8, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I am He who is. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Uh, uh, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. All right, so Jesus is becoming more explicit about who he is. 
Specifically, that he is calling himself God's personal name. So you understand the growing division. Jesus starts to unveil who he really is before all of them. And the more unveiled he gets, the more the division grows. Okay? And that's the principle here. The more clear Jesus becomes about who he really is, the more crazy and enraged the response from those who would oppose him. Um, and this is an age-old problem. Okay, this, is not, this is not a problem that was unique to the Jews when Jesus came. This is a, a problem that dates all the way back through the whole Old Testament. God has revealed his name to his people. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. That's what I'm capable of. I am your substance. I am your life. I am your very life. I will feed you. I will care for you. Trust me. Obey my law and everything will go well. (laughs) This is what the whole Old Testament is, is saying. I love you. I have saved you. I have called you to myself. Now walk with me. And then the whole world will know that I am, I am, that I am the Lord. But they continually turn away. They, they, do not, they do not relate to him as I am. They relate to him in different ways. They go after other gods. Um, John has written this gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might, and that believing we would have life in what? His name. What's his name? It's I am. Jesus is the one. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And your name in 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 the Bible is is your identity, your character. Okay, so if you are Peter, you're the rock. If you are I am, what is it that you are? Everything, all. <laughs> the word, right? The logos, the ordering principle of the universe. I am he who is. In Revelation, John says, you were, you are, you will always be. Doesn't matter what tense you put the be verb in, <laughs> he is. He was. He shall be, okay? All right, so as Jesus' claims about himself become more clear, the division grows, and then we come to this sign, okay? To this point, it's it's a lot of dialogue, a lot of back and forth, okay? Now we have a story. We have uh, one sign, and it's the man born blind. And um, if anything would sum up what's, what the issue is in this whole section, it's, it's symbolized in this working of a miracle. Because what's the problem? The man can't see. What's the problem with everyone around Jesus? They're blind. They can't see. They walk in darkness. So here he is, and he's a man blind from birth. And this is the first time... In all of Scripture that, this, that we ever hear, I mean, there's a lot of miracles in the Old Testament. Never someone who was blind from birth receiving sight. Which is why the guy says, you don't even have a precedent for this in Scripture. 
He says this to the Pharisees. Never from the, from the beginning of the world has, it been, has this happened. And you guys still don't know who this guy is? You, 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 think, he's, you think he's a weirdo? Some, there's something special about this guy. But the symbolism is so rich here. The Jews refused to believe the empirical proof. This guy was blind. Now he sees. And they, they refused to accept that. They go and get his parents. Was he really blind from birth? Let me see your birth certificate. <laughs> you know, like, um, as long as I am the world, verse 5 of chapter 9, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, obviously, what is light? It's sight. It's being able to see clearly. What is darkness? It's obscurity, right? It's you cannot see. And this is what he says. He says, you, you are walking in darkness. I'm standing right here. You cannot see me. It's because you're clinging to your own perceptions, your own understandings. Those are dark. They're unenlightened. As soon as you start to see things from my perspective, everything else will make sense. I am the light of the world. I shed light on reality. If you look at things in, my, in light of me... You will see truth. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is an issue of truth. Being blind means we don't know truth. We don't know reality. We cannot grasp it. It's the same as being in the dark. Uh, Being in the light means that we know truth. We see clearly. Um... So verse 18 says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Uh, for the Jews had already agreed. They had already agreed. See, this is ahead of time. There's no room in their, in their reality for Jesus. It's closed off already. And this is the problem. This is darkness. This is the lie. This is deception. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, there's one guy, that, there's a little detail, I forget where it is. It's Nicodemus. It's the only other time we see Nicodemus. And he says, hey guys, shouldn't we, like before we judge, shouldn't we like gather all the facts? <laughs> That's basically what he said. And they just, you know, they dismiss him. But good old Nicodemus, he's always, he's the, he's the, uh, he's the, the true seeker in this book. But he says, um... This seems a little, a little forward. But then they're finally cornered and confronted with undeniable proof. It doesn't do anything. Okay? It doesn't do anything. All it does is it makes them lash out in anger and personal attacks. Okay, now does this not just nail our current climate? cultural climate. Just right on the nose. Left or right wing. Conservative or liberal. 
There is no desire to know truth. There is a desire for one's predetermined notions to be confirmed. And Jesus says, if you've already decided what's true and what's false, you will remain in the darkness. So these Pharisees, they're confronted with the proof. This man was blind. Now he sees. And what do they do? They lash out in anger. He says, uh, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are, his, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. <laughs> you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. There's that, there's that principle again. If, if you want to know truth, you can know it. If you want to hear God, you can hear him. The problem is we don't really want to hear God. We don't really want to face reality. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You bastard. That's all they can come up with. The guy makes a perfect argument. This is the first time in the history of the world that anyone has ever heard of anything like this happening. What, what do you guys... What is the problem with you guys? I was blind, now I see. And they say, you were born in utter sin. You were born of an illegitimate union. That's all they can come up with. Once they're cornered, they have to face reality. They have to make a decision about who Jesus is, and the odds are not in their favor. And all they can do is call the guy a bastard. That's it. And this just perfectly epitomizes, I think, the state of our world. <laughs> all of reason points to one thing. All of truth points to one thing. Yeah, but your parents weren't married when, you, when your mom got pregnant. Seriously. And you think you can teach us? And they cast him out. <laughs> this great specimen of the glorious saving power of God. That had never been seen before. Get out of here. We don't want to see it. And this is the, this is the problem all along. You know, God, Jesus is working the works of God. Yeah, on the Sabbath. But they're the works of God. And they go, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And here we go. For judgment I came into this world, Jesus says, and those who, that those who do not see 
may see. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. They're miserable. They don't need me to condemn them. There's a curse on the human race already. Because people have turned away from God. I have come to bring them out of the curse. So that those who do not see may see. I've literally just made this guy see. And that those who see may become blind. Not see truth. See what they want to see. If all you're concerned about is seeing what you want to see, understanding reality through your lens, Jesus has come to make you blind. Right? You will walk in blindness. That is darkness. He's not condemning you. It's just the fact that he is the light, and if you don't want to see things in light of him, you're never going to see truth. Some of the Pharisees heard him, near him heard these things and said to him, So you're calling us blind, huh? And Jesus said to him, Yeah, it would be great if you were blind. Because then I could heal you. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Wow. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So then we get to this good shepherd section. And what I want to point out here is that Jesus is going all the way back to the first sin. All right, let me just read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Of course they don't. So Jesus again said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So there is no way into the people of God, there's no way into relationship with God, into the fold, into the family, if it's not through Jesus. There's no way to be human if it's not through Jesus. If you want to be the kind of creature that God has created you to be, you need to look at Jesus and figure out who you're supposed to be. How are we to know what life is about if we don't consult the creator of life? Is what he's saying. How can you get in? All you're going to be doing is, is hacking your way in. And what that, what's that going to do? It's just going to bring... You're just going to be a thief. And you're just going to be stealing, killing, and destroying. If you don't consult me, if you don't come through me, if you don't walk in light of who I am... You're going to make a mess of everything around you. Which is what you're doing. He's talking straight to the Pharisees. Who are the people of God. Who are supposed to be the shepherds of the people of God. They didn't care anything about the sheep. Jesus says, I am here to lay down my life for the sheep. That you have left to be uh, victims. To be destroyed. To be killed by the wolves. And then he sums it up by saying, I'm going to start in verse 22. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. So Feast of uh, Booths is in the fall, and Feast of Dedication, which is what we would call Hanukkah, happens in the winter, kind of at Christmas time. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) How many times can I tell you? I am. I am. I am. Get it? (laughs) Tell us plainly. How, How much more plainly can you get? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Remember in chapter 1. He was in the world and the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. How's that for plainly? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And here their fundamental misunderstanding is revealed in in plain sight. They give them, they, they totally tip their hand. You can't read it any more clearly. 
Their accusation is diametrically opposed to the truth. Jesus is not a man who is making himself God. Jesus is God who has made himself man. And that changes everything. When you think a man is trying to make himself God, you're going to be fundamentally opposed to him. But when you see God who has humbled himself and become a man, you believe in him and you have life. But not only that, as a man, he is here to lay down his life. To use his authority, he says, I have authority to lay down my life. Nobody takes my life from me. I am going to lay it down of my own accord. It's going to be my will. Now, why is that important? I said a couple minutes ago that this takes us back all the way to the original sin. What's the first sin? To distance yourself from God, right? Satan said, God doesn't want you to eat that because he knows that when you eat it, you're going to become like him. Do you hear this? You, God doesn't want you to become like him. And so, in, in giving you these rules, he is suppressing you. He's hindering you. He's keeping you from something. Right? That's the first lie. That's the thief who comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is the thief who has come into the garden to steal, kill, and destroy. God was never trying to suppress them or keep them from anything. God was trying to lead them into life. And so Jesus says, I'm coming to once and for all correct this misperception that you are, all are still victim to. You still think I'm here trying to make myself God over you. No, no, no. I'm here using my authority to lay down my life. Don't ever tell me again that I am withholding things from you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that every mouth would be stopped. You being a man, make yourself God. What grief that must have caused Jesus. Who was in a few months about to get up on a cross and die for these people. But they were going to have to look on him whom they had pierced. And when he was lifted up from the ground, he would draw all men to himself. They were going to have to reckon with Jesus hanging there on the cross. They were going to have to reckon with their refusal to believe that he was good. Look at a man bleeding naked on a cross and tell him he is not good. A sinless man dying for your sins. Look at him and tell him he is not good. That he is withholding good things from you. That's what Jesus says. That's what the cross is. They're going to have to to come to terms with the fact that it's their own instincts and desires and understandings that are the true source of evil and oppression and slavery. It's your own heart that you're in bondage to. It's not some God who's trying to lord it over you. 
Your own heart has already condemned you. Your own actions have brought a curse on your life. I'm here to deliver you. But you have to leave all that behind. But I'm here to bring you out of that. So what can we, how can we respond to this? Um, I think one thing to, to chew on is um, if the Jesus that you know isn't divisive, then you probably don't really know Jesus. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. It's not, it's not because he's some provo- provocative, kind of sadistic person who just likes to come in and mess things up. But it's because the claims that Jesus makes about himself require that you either abandon your own understanding and judgment and view things in light of him, or that you continue to walk in darkness, living according to what makes most sense to you, living according to what makes the, pleases you the most. And not only that, but, but you will conspire with other people around you who serve the same God as you, which is yourself, to eradicate the source of division and to get rid of it. So Jesus, what he says about himself, requires that you choose between your own understanding or the truth. And so if the Jesus you know isn't causing you to abandon your own judgment <laughs> in light of his truth, then you, don't, you aren't really walking with him. If you can still trust your own instincts and walk with Jesus, you're not his disciple. And it's very clear from the book of John. You cannot cling to your own understanding, your own perceptions, and also claim to be a bondservant of Jesus. It doesn't work like that. He is the light. There is no light outside of him. He is the door. Okay? The second thing is that um, seeing Jesus and being around Jesus was not enough. Because this division that was happening was two groups of people observing the same set of data. (laughs) You're seeing the same works that I am. You're hearing the same words that I am. You want to kill him. I'm falling to my knees. What's going on? There's a certain disposition of trust and humility that's required to actually see Jesus for who he really is. You cannot, you cannot sort of be over here and be like, well, when Jesus decides to show me who he is, that's great. He's not going to do it. In Revelation, he says, stand at the door and knock. I don't blast down the door. I'm not going to do that. That's not how I I do it. If you want me to come in, open the door. I'll come in. So trust and humility is a great way to define faith. That other word that keeps popping up, believe. If you want to believe... If you want to begin with the idea that maybe you're wrong, that maybe the way that you view reality is off, then we can have a conversation. But until you're willing to at least admit that you probably don't 
have a lot of truth at your disposal. You don't really know a lot of things. Unless you're willing to admit that, you can't, you're not going to really get very far in being around Jesus. That's not going to do much for you. You're going to come to Scripture and you're going to leave just as bitter as you came to Scripture. But if you want, if you ask Him to come, if you open the door, He'll come. Okay? The third thing is to, we, we have to realize that our hearts are so tricky. Right? There is something in the heart that wants to cling to its own understanding of reality. Do you, do you realize this? I mean, do you experience this? You don't want to hear truth. It's like, no, don't tell me that. Even though it's good, it's true. I don't want to hear it. And we bitterly defend our own viewpoint, our own perspective. But Jesus comes to show that we cannot know truth apart from his light. We have to relinquish. It has to be outside of ourselves. Our measuring line, our level, has to be outside of ourselves. Our frame of reference has to be ultimately in Jesus and not in our own hearts. Now, our own hearts can be shaped by Jesus to the point where they do process things correctly. But that only comes as we surrender to him and allow him to remake us and reframe our minds, okay? Renew us. We either hate the light because we think we are good or we love the light because we know we are evil, blind, and victims of the devil. And out of the darkness, we hear the voice of the shepherd. And we come to him because we see that he's the good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep. That's how John sums it up for us. Let me say that again. We either hate the light because we think we are good. You don't want to be healed because you think you already see. Or you love the light because it's all you have. You, you see yourself for who you are and you're blind. And you have been killed and destroyed and stolen from. And again, I just want to say that this this comes back to the very heart of that first sin. We don't want to do it God's way because we think that in doing that way and leaving our own understanding behind that we're missing out on something or that God's withholding something from us. We want to trust our own instincts. Uh, But this is actual bondage. It's not freedom. It's actual bondage. It's actual blindness. The reality is that God is not withholding anything and has never withheld anything from his people and never will withhold anything from his people. And Jesus himself is the proof of that. You cannot look at Jesus and say, that God has anything left to give or prove. Right? And so the, it, it's up to you. The ball is in your court now. God has acted definitively. We know his character. Jesus is who God is. He is the I am. What's the, what's the I am like as a man? Well, he laid down his life. That's what he did with his supreme power. 
And that's the invitation that Jesus gives to us. If you are willing to abandon your just pinched, narrow view of reality, I would love to show you the light. But you have to want to. If your will is to do the will of God, you'll know that what I'm saying is right. All right, and so he calls and he says, what, what do you want? And there he stands at the door. And you can hide from him like I do from the trick-or-treaters. <laughs> or you can open and, uh, and he'll come in. Amen? Let's spend some time just in, uh, in reflection.